We're going to move on from the section that we've been talking about, bad behavior. You're like, whew, finally made it through the bad behavior section. So now we're going to talk about how do we live right uh, in the midst of suffering? How do we live in the world in which the world is actually against us because they're against Christ? And as we celebrated Christ this morning, we're in Christ. It's all about Christ. And if we're in Christ and the world hates Christ, by definition or logic tells us that they're not going to be happy with believers of Christ. And so this morning, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 13, the beauty of this passage is it's a continuation of what we've been studying. It's the implication of how to survive in the midst of suffering. You know, what's amazing, this is an, a question that I get asked a lot. Lord, you know, pastor, I need help. I'm dealing with so much. How do I get through it? How, uh, how as a church, do we get through suffering? How do I deal with pain? How do I deal with all these things? How can I live right? I just want to know how to deal with it so that way I'm not living in a wrong way. Another way is, how can I suffer well? I've met with so many people, and it's amazing when people are dealing with some of the most amazing things that are painful and suffering, how they actually end up encouraging others. And what's amazing is that's what they want. I know Marilyn and I talked about this. Like, I just want to encourage people, and, but I hate where I'm at. <laughs> How do I do that, right? And what we see in our text this morning is a culmination of all these things that Peter has been talking about since chapter 1. And this is really the theology of suffering. This is the, where we see the rubber meet the road. This is where we see God, in the midst of our suffering, how can we survive? These are the principles that instruct us in the midst of our struggles. And so this is what we want to look at this morning. The the thing I want to remind you as a caveat, as an introduction, is this. There are two really faulty thinking or faulty thoughts behind suffering. And these are things that tend to permeate the way we think. These are things that permeate the why we do what we do when we're in pain. And that is this, that suffering is avoidable, that we should avoid all suffering, that we can even avoid it, or that it shouldn't even exist. There are, there are people out there that say there is no suffering. If you're in Christ, there's no suffering at all. And it's amazing, and Jesus said that, I suffered, you will suffer also. And so we can't think that way, that all suffering is avoidable. The other thing is this, that there are people that believe everything is suffering. They have a persecution complex. Every, everywhere they look, they, they see suffering. They're just persecuted every minute, every day, and they have this kind of complex. That is not correct either. This doesn't help our walk with God. This doesn't help us at all to deal with struggles. This is what doesn't help. Comparing our suffering. 
comparing your suffering with somebody else's suffering or in a way minimizing suffering. You know, people compare all the time, well, my suffering's worse. Or, or you say, well, it's not really that bad. I don't have any suffering. And you ignore your suffering. That's not good either. The other thing that doesn't help is by playing God and attributing all suffering to sin. Well, they're suffering because they're not good people. They're just living in sin, so they're suffering. We see that a lot, right? And we judge others. We play God when we do that, when we judge circumstances and not look at the heart of people. We do that a lot. They say, well, pastor, how do we know the difference? You ask questions. We think about their needs. We look for not our interest, but their interest. Philippians chapter 2. The other thing that doesn't help us in suffering is addressing the natural circumstances rather than looking at the spiritual relationship with God our Father. Many times when people are going through hard times, they focus solely on the circumstances rather than running to God our Father in the midst of their suffering. We need to, as a body, look at our spiritual relationship with God. Don't focus on the circumstances. That will not help as well. As I said, we've been discussing in chapter 2 that there's a natural order to things. There's submission that's involved. And then we saw in going into chapter 3 that there's destructive behavior. And all these things, they ruin our emotions, they ruin our testimony, they ruin our relationships, they ruin things in the church. If we don't tame our tongue, if we don't tame our fears, if we don't tame anger, we don't tame guilt, it ruins things. And it destroys things. But yet now Peter stops and says, here are some principles that need to be in place in your life if you're going to live in a way that draws people to Christ in the midst of your suffering. These are the principles. These are things to value. That's what principle means. Principles are things to value that will guide your behavior to successful living. These are great principles. Instead of destroying things in the midst of your suffering, these principles give you life in the midst of your suffering. Let's pray as we read them, starting in verse 13 and ending in verse 17. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that you will speak loud and clear. Make these principles alive, not just in our mind, but Lord, infect our heart that we might not just listen with our ears, but we might listen intently and allow you to penetrate our heart and to grow these principles that might help us in the midst of struggles. Lord, it is our desire that we would love you more. Lord, it is my desire that we wouldn't just be filled with knowledge, but that we would allow your word to control our hearts, that we might love you more. So, Lord, I pray that you would protect our minds right now, protect our hearts, that we'd be thankful for your living word that guides, instructs, and gives us help and health to our body. So, Lord, I just pray that your spirit 
would speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, and he, he's gone through all of these things about relationships, about how to deal with them in a godly way. Now, how do we deal with suffering? And he says in verse 13, now. <laughs> now, all these things. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good, be- who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I hope you see there that if we, we just run to do whatever our flesh says in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, we tend to land in evil places, evil thoughts, evil patterns, evil desires, bad behavior. But God wants us to run to doing good. And that's our first principle this morning as we go back to verse 13. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? And that's the point. I remember, go backwards, there we go. Pursue a passion for goodness. Pursuing a passion for goodness. Listen to the question. Who can harm you? You say, well, if I walk down in, down, in, down in the middle of the night through downtown Bellingham, there's probably a lot of people that could harm me. But that's not what Peter's point is. Who can destroy your soul? Who can remove you out of God's blessing? See, a lot of times when we're going through suffering, we think on a horizontal pattern or plane, we think about the circumstances, but we don't think about true reality. And as God, asks, as God gives us this question, he's, he's given us a question that says, no one. And we say, well, yeah, but there's a lot of people that can harm me. But if you're zealous for good, if you're a believer in Christ, who can truly harm you? Look at Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35 gives us the answer to this question. Who can harm you? If you're pursuing a passion for godliness, who has the ability to take away your value? Because that's really what the word harm means here. Who is going to change the worth or value of your life Who can do that? Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are what? Weak? We are destroyed by our culture? We are destroyed by our circumstances? 
Do you see what it says? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things, nor present things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who can remove the significance of your life? No one. If you have given your life to Christ and he has paid for your sins, you are valued by the Most High. Who is going to harm that? Any circumstances in our life? None. This is the starting point of our theology of suffering. If we pursue a passion of goodness, there's no one that can harm you. The word in our text is zealous, but it means passion. It's a person with great passion for something. Goodness, by the way, doesn't describe just what we think is good. Goodness is, or when we pursue being good, the literal term there is goodness. It's describing a positive moral quality that's characterized by having an interest or welfare in helping others. It's the same goodness in which Jesus demonstrated when he died on the cross for our sin. He didn't pursue his own welfare, but he pursued us to meet our needs. That's what we need to pursue. When we look at our life, is this the model of our life? Are we zealots? Are we pursuing a passion for goodness, to seek the welfare of others, to to benefit others, to seek interest of others. Goodness that it describes behavior that benefits others rather than self. A good person is concerned for the well-being of others, spiritually and in every way. A child of light walks in daily dependence on the Holy Spirit, bringing forth goodness as the fruit of the Spirit. If you go to Galatians 5, it says, that one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. We need to pursue that. If we pursue that, it will help. Look at Proverbs 21.21. It says, Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life. Righteousness and honor. There's a benefit for pursuing goodness. Pursuing goodness, Proverbs 6.7. Look at this. When a man... Man's ways pleases the Lord. He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The idea is that when we are passionate for God's goodness, you make it extremely difficult for anyone to even persecute you. That's the point that Peter is making. The more you pursue it, like if I go down and walk through downtown Bellingham in the middle of the night, do you think, I make, do you think I'm making it easier for somebody to hurt me, or do you think I'm making it harder? I'm walking in, I'm making it easy, right? But if you're pursuing goodness, God's goodness, you're not putting yourself in a place where you can be hurt. You're not taunting the devil. You're not taunting temptations. You're not just, some. I know some people that say, well, I'm going to walk right up to the line of sin and I'm going to dance on the line, but don't worry, I'm not going to fall over. 
How do you know? We make it easier to trip. I don't know about you, but I don't go usually a week without stubbing my toe on something. And if you stub your toe, where are you going to land? Right? I'm hopefully next to something I can grab that's solid. Right? If you're pursuing goodness, you're not going to walk even close to the line. You're not going to want to. And it's going to protect you. So when you're going through suffering, it's going to make it easier to live a godly life. The second thing that he says here is in, found in verse 14. And it says, but even, but here's a, you know, uh, but even if you should suffer for righteous sake, you will be what? Blessed. Do you know in the, in the Greek, it's really weird. It says, even if you should suffer, you know what? If you pursue goodness, the likelihood of you suffering is minimal. But if you should suffer, because it's not the rule, it doesn't mean you'll never suffer, but it helps. But if you should suffer, it literally says this, even if you do suffer, blessed. It doesn't, in the Greek, it doesn't say you will be blessed. It says blessed. It's like Peter said, yelled out, blessed. And what is he doing? Do you remember in chapter 1, if you turn back, it says, verse 3, look at it, it says what? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Blessed. Even if you do suffer, blessed. What does he mean? He means be pliable in suffering. We are made to bend but not break. Do you know, you know the good test of a good fishing pole? If a f- fishing pole doesn't bend, what's going to happen if you hook a big fish? <laughs> yeah, Kedrick knows. Snap! A fishing pole is meant to what? Bend. And Peter's saying, he's saying, be pliable in suffering because Blessed, we have blessing. Peter is saying, when you suffer for what is right, we are blessed. Literally, it's an exclamation point to focus on what we truly have in Christ. In other words, bend with it, accept that suffering will come. We have to acknowledge that God is bringing it to pass and he is allowing it to, for our testing, our purification as it says in chapters 4, verse 12, blessed, blessed, we're blessed because God created us to be able to bend and not break. We're not going to break under the, under the worldly pressure. We're going to one day live with Christ because he has bought and paid for with his very blood and body. He has paid for our inheritance he is waiting and longing to rejoice with us in heaven. That's blessed. Here, blessed serves not so much to emphasize an effect, but our motive to not fear. Because we are blessed, what does it say? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Remember we talked about fear? 
Remember we talked about anger, trouble, guilt. All of these things are in our text this morning. Have no fear. Why? Because we are the blessed. You're the blessed. So don't fear those that can only irritate you. Right? Because your life has been purchased, bought and paid for by Christ. Puritan Thomas Watson said, Affection, Affections work for good as they have make a way for glory. Not that they merit glory, but they're prepared for it. The more that you focus on your blessings from God, the more pliable you will be and you don't break. A great, uh, I caught this somewhere. I don't remember where I found it, but it's in my bank of notes of sayings. It says, we cannot break, um, we cannot break the worst, ah, we cannot break the worst, the We cannot break. The worst that the world can do is bend us a little. That's the blessing we have in Christ. So we have to have a passion for doing good. We have to be pliable in suffering because we focus on our blessings so that we maintain a place for Christ. This is important. If we, the theology in suffering is this, if we are going to survive and live correctly in the midst of suffering, We have to maintain a place for Christ. In fact, he quotes Isaiah chapter 8 in verse 11 through 14. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 through 14. In verse 14, he's saying this. And in our text, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's a direct quote out of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 through 14. And it says this, in verse 11 in Isaiah 8, he says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that the people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, but fear the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling for both the house of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now let me give you a little background. When God said this to Israel in Isaiah 8, historically this was what's going on. In in Isaiah's day, the king of Judah, that's in the southern kingdom, uh, King Ahaz was facing an impending invasion by the powerful Assyrians. Not Syria, but the Assyrians. So further north. And so the Assyrians were getting ready to come in and invade. So the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, not the Assyrians, but these two kingdoms wanted Judah to say, hey, would you ally yourself with us, so we can defeat the Assyrians. So you know what? But King Ahaz said, "I will not align myself with you." And he said, "So guess what? He so they the uh, the Assyrians 
and Israel decided they were going to invade Judah themselves. So because Judah wouldn't align themselves. And so here's the thing. And because he feared Israel and Judah, guess what Ahaz did? Because he feared them. And Isaiah says, don't fear them, but fear God. Make a place for me. Guess what they did? He, Ahaz, aligned himself with Assyria. The very kingdom that was coming to destroy them, he ended up allying with them to try to destroy Israel and Syria. And guess who ended up getting destroyed by the Assyrians? Judah. That's the thing. When we deal with suffering, we tend to ally ourselves with the wrong emotions, the wrong feelings, the wrong people. When we fear the circumstance, we actually end up allying ourselves with the very thing that we're afraid of. As Christians, we are like the king of Ahaz. And many times when we face crisis, we're tempted to give in to our fears and to make, and we end up making the wrong decisions. But here, the point is this. Is there a main focus in your life for Christ? Are you developing every day, are you developing a place for Christ in your life? It's like coffee. First thing I do when I come to, to church, I make sure that the coffee machine is on. Then the next thing I do is I go get my coffee mug while the coffee machine is warming up. Then I go to the coffee machine and I fill up my cup of coffee and I say all my hellos to Tammy. Then I get my cup of coffee and then I get to start my study. There's a place for coffee. Now, I actually went a few days without coffee and it was just fine. I don't have to, but it's my routine. Do you routinely... Build a place for Christ in your life to be your defender in the time of fear. Remember the context. Is potential, there's, in all the potential suffering, no matter what looms on the horizon in your life, are you being submissive in your communion with the Lord? Are you honoring Christ so much that it actually dispels your fear. In your hearts, honor Christ. This is a huge imperative. This is a command. You have to keep Christ as the main focus in your life. Do you have a sanctuary? Do you have a chapel? Do you have a building in your life that belongs to Christ. And when fear comes from without, that is where you run. Right? Is that, that's what he's saying. You have to maintain it. By the way, when it says here, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, it's, it's an imperative that's supposed to be continual. That's why I chose maintain a place for Christ. You can't just say, yep, I'm saved. I have a place for Christ. He's living in me. I gave my heart to Christ. And now I don't have to run to it anymore. It's there. You have to maintain that place. 
That's why we do communion. Be prepared to share your hope. If you're maintaining a place for Christ, you should be reflecting that there is something important in your life besides the circumstance where people say, wow, you're awful. You're, why are you okay with what's going on? Sometimes we're cheerful and sometimes we're not. I'm not always cheerful, right? Tammy and, and, and uh, Becky. Uh, the other last week, my computer, right before the wedding, it deleted my sermon for Sunday and it deleted the message for, for the wedding twice. And then I couldn't give her the notes. I don't know if you noticed there were sections out of the notes missing last week because I kept deleting them. And Tammy couldn't even get it to work. Once I transferred it to her computer, my notes were just infected. I was not very patient. I needed to run to Christ. And I needed to be prepared to share that it's okay. What's amazing when in history, William Tyndale said we are going to he said, you know, light yourself on fire so that everybody can come and watch you burn. Burn for Christ. Are you a beacon of hope? Be prepared to share your hope. Right? By the way, do you notice what Peter is not saying in verse 15, it says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope that is in you. He's not saying that you need to be ready, that right now you have every answer to every question. Now, you should study to show yourself approved so you can rightly divide the word of truth, right? In Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that. But the point is this. To explain the basis for your strong expectations for what you know Christ is going to do. I know that even if my legs are broken, Christ will be glorified. I am hurting right now, but it's okay. Because God's not done with me. Right? We know that. I know that because I've broken my legs many times. (laughs) (laughs) and I got to see it in effective witness just recently. This implies that our desire and our confidence for the future is stronger than the circumstances of right now pain. If we make a place for Christ, he becomes your greatest hope no matter your circumstances. I like 1 Peter 1, verse 6. He said this, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And verse 7, he says, Even though you are tested by fire, you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Christian motto is this, be prepared. Are you, be, are you prepared to bend when the pain comes? Are you prepared to bend? It all, de- de- it all depends on whether you maintain a place for Christ. If you're focused on your blessings, if, you are pr- if you're passionate for what is good. And you have to maintain a pure conscience. 
How do we live a life in the midst of suffering? We pursue a passion for goodness. We, be, we become pliable because of focusing on blessings. We maintain a place for Christ. We're, we be, <laughs> we're prepared to share our hope. And we maintain a pure conscience. He says in the very end, he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Are you constantly running to God and you know that you are pursuing goodness and that even though you're pursuing goodness and people are slandering you, that you are okay because you're not doing anything wrong. It's okay if you're being persecuted by people. It's okay in in that time of pain because your conscience is clear. Have you gone to the Lord and checked? I love what MacArthur in his commentary in in, uh, in Corinthians said this. MacArthur said, people always say to me, you know, you get a lot of criticism. People, and, and rightly so, I talked to John MacArthur one time and I said, what did you expect? You always stick your neck in it. <laughs> He's always putting his, his, his foot in, in, in a lot of businesses to make sure that people's theology is correct. And he does a great job at it. But he gets criticized a lot for it. And he says, that's true. And I get a lot of it. And he said, somebody said, you get attacked a lot. And he said, well, that's true. And they said, well, how do you respond to it? John said this. He says, my first response is always the same. I look into my heart to see if the criticism is valid. That's the first thing he says he does in order to get past it. Is it valid? Is their criticism true? Then, once I deal with my heart and I realize that my conscience is clear, it is clean, that I have nothing against God, no sin, then I have no anxiety because there's nothing there to convict me. But it brings me no, and it brings me no pain. It bears me no trouble because it cannot produce any guilt. If on the other hand, I'm accused of doing something and I am somehow persecuted for it by someone and I look into my heart and I say, yes, it's valid, then the guilt wells up within me and I have no security against the criticism. So I must maintain a clear conscience because I defiled my own conscience and it cannot be eased until I deal with it. And he says, I have to keep my conscience clean at all costs. Psalm 118 says, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do against me? If your conscience is clear before God, then nothing that anybody says means anything. Did you notice that it says that having a good conscience so that when they slander you and they revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame? Let me give you a real example. Um, we have always felt when we did foster care um, down in California, down in California is a pretty scary place. They decide to put you in jail just for about anything. You know, if you drink with the wrong straws, you can get fined, you know, all these things. There's all sorts of silly rules in California. Christian people that do foster care are freaked out about a lot of the laws. 
And I know a lot of people, they close their, they, they put screens up on their, uh, blackout screens on their windows so nobody could peer in. They locked their doors. They didn't let people in from CPS. They were f- afraid. And when we did foster care, we decided that we were going to be open. We weren't going to hide anything. So much so in my very first training class, I stood up and my wife's like <laughs> digging in me. She's like, great, you're going to ruin it. We're never going to do foster care. Because I stood up and I said, I'm a pastor. I love the Lord. And anybody that comes into our house is going to be taught to love the Lord. And even if I wasn't a pastor, I love the Lord. And I'm not going to change my love for the Lord and how I talk about the Lord just because I do foster care. And I made that big proclamation in front of the, the authorities of, that were in charge of the foster care system in our county. And they came up to me and they said, wow, it's so refreshing to see somebody so open. Now let me fast forward. We kept, ha- I, we kept following that, po- that, that f- philosophy. Come on in, just see us. You know, we don't, we're not hiding anything. We don't want to, even if we make a mistake, and that's okay, we'll, we'll correct it. You can help us correct it. But you know what? Because we might make a mistake. But we invited the openness. And here's the thing. All we wanted to do was to love kids and to love families. That was our motto. Love kids, love families. And one day, we loved the kids, we loved the families, and we, we had these two kids that came in. They started calling me dad right away. And we were like, you don't have to call us dad. And they're like, but you're the dad of the house. So they just called me dad. And I'm like, all right, good enough. But, you know, you don't have to call me dad. You have a dad. And they're like, oh, yeah, we know. You're not him. And I was like, okay. So... That was the first night. They were a little apprehensive about going to bed. We, we played. We laughed. We, 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 I would tease them and all those things, but we would leave the door open so that they knew where we were. Everybody could see into the room. The next day, they go to visit with their dad, who's homeless, lives on the street. And the first thing out of the kids' mouth... We have a new dad, and he plays with us, and, and he teases us, and he was, he, you know, he, he was scaring us at night, and, and all these kind of stuff, and you know, doing all the normal dad things that a dad would do with, with their kids, and trying to make them feel at home and feel comfortable. The dad immediately goes to this, the, the CPS worker and says, I have a complaint. He's abusing my kids. And this is what to do, da, 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 and he made the accusations. I come home to an investigator at my door. He says, do you know why I'm here? And I said, oh, hey, so-and-so, I don't know. You're welcome to come on in. I don't know why you're here. He goes, well, we're here to investigate you. I'm like, all right, well, come on in. <laughs> That's a little weird, but, you know, it's like, well, why do you need it? What do you need to know? It's right here, you know. They're like, well, you have a complaint against you, and you're abusing the foster kids, and we're like, She's like, I don't think it's true, but I have to take it serious. Long story of this is, dad was upset because of the way the kids loved me, and they loved our home. And so the dad saw me as an adversary rather than a help for him. And it was hard. But here's the thing, in all of it, eventually the head of the whole investigative thing 
shows up at our house and he comes in and he says, this is dumb, this, there's no accusation. They didn't even talk to the kids to find out what the kids really said. And in fact, the person that made the initial accusation, the CPS worker, got fired. So here's the thing, because she didn't do her job, she didn't listen to what the kids were saying, she left the kids in a vulnerable position to say things and the dad to use them against us as foster parents. And she wasn't supposed to do that. She did it multiple times. It wasn't just the one time. But when God says having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. She was fired. Here's the thing. It was not, it was a little stressful. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't bad. What? I was a little too excited yet. (laughs) Because I got to spend time more with other people. But it was amazing. Guess who the guy that came to investigate us to close the case was a believer. And... And he was a believer who was a, like, I, he, was a, he was a leader in his church. And I thought it was strange when I saw the guy show up and, he, and I parked behind him and he has a Trump sticker on his car. I was like, is, are, is this guy from CPS? <laughs> and I sat there, I was like, what's going on? Here's the thing, is, is guys, people are going to slander us. People are going to accuse us. People are going to do the strangest things to benefit themselves. Pursue a passion of goodness, not because it, because of who you are in Christ, so that way you're pliable when suffering comes, so you bend but you don't break, so you realize that you're blessed, we're blessed, and nobody can take that away from you. Maintain a place for Christ so you can run to that so that way it's a joy when you face persecution and God will take care of it because you're in Christ. Be prepared to share that hope. That was great. I started witnessing to this guy and I find out he's a believer. And he goes, well, this makes sense. No wonder they accused you because you're a believer. (laughs) But you know what he did? I was so cool. He just took it aside and says, we're just going to tear it up and throw it away. He didn't even keep a copy because it says it's not valid. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. But that's what Peter is saying here when he says, if you pursue what is right, if you follow these principles, that when you are slandered, you are not going to be the one that's put to shame in the end. We are not going to be shamed. We are going to stand with Christ for all eternity. Go there in your mind. This is how we deal with suffering, pain, persecution, slander, evil. Not the evil behavior. Not the getting out of order and becoming unruly. That is not how we deal with it. This is how we deal with it. Lord, I thank you so much for these examples. And Lord, it is hard to go through suffering. You never said it would be easy. Lord, it was hard when you were whipped and abused and crushed. Oh, Lord, I can't imagine what that was like. But you also said it was for your joy 
that you endured that shame. It was your joy to go to the cross and to be despised and shamed because you knew the outcome. You knew that you were dying to take our place, to raise, to conquer death, that we might live with you for eternity. Lord, I pray that it would be our desire to follow that example today. Lord, you told us that we need to have a place for you in our life so that way we can run to you in safety. Lord, someone here may not have that place. They've never given their life to you. They don't know what it means to truly be saved. They're just living a ritualistic good life. They're pursuing what they feel is good, but they're not pursuing your good. Because, Lord, you tell us there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who truly seeks after God. But, Lord, you seek us when you died on the cross. Right now, Lord, I pray that if someone here needs to be saved from their sin and they're still trying to live in their goodness, that, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would prick their heart right now and that they would say, Lord, I need you to save me from my sin. That I, and that they would just repent and trust you with their life. Lord, I pray that they would give their life to you this morning. That they would choose right now to say, once and for all, my life belongs in Christ. That they would let Jesus purchase their life by his body and blood. That, he, that they would be bought and paid for to be bought out of slavery of sin and given freedom in your family that one day we will enjoy in heaven for the rest of eternity. Lord, I pray that no one leaves here living in their own goodness. But Lord, that this morning that they would live in your goodness, your sacrifice for us. Lord, that they would repent and believe in you. Lord, I, I pray that with all my heart that this morning that none of us would leave here not being a part of the family of God with their sins not forgiven. I pray that everyone would know you. Lord, I pray that we would take you with us and share that hope that we would be freed in our suffering every day to share that hope that we have. That, you know what, it hurts right now, but it's okay because Jesus is coming. You may hurt me now, but I'm not breaking because I am held together by the blood of Christ. I've been bought and paid for. You cannot do anything that hurts me permanently. Who is there to harm us? Lord, I pray that we would carry that hope with us every day. Lord, and just that we would see new birth into the family of God. Just right now as there's in springtime, all the things are starting to grow. All the plants are blooming and flowers are coming out, but we would see relationships with Christ flourish and that we would see new birth into the family of God by people getting saved from their sin. Lord, I pray that would be our desire instead of just feeling good, that we would rest all our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.